Hey, before we get to the podcast, we want to share with you an exciting new way you can help support the podcast. Yes, we have finally opened a Patreon account. Go to patreon.com slash 2NJB to check it out. We have four different tiers, and they each allow you to support the podcast at a different level, and you get really cool rewards. So go to patreon.com slash 2NJB and help us continue putting out great content for you. Thank you, guys. Let me ask you a question. If you checked showtimes for movies in your area at any given moment over the past decade, which type of movie would you almost certainly see on the list? That's right. A superhero movie. But not just any superhero movie, a Marvel superhero movie. Marvel has produced and released around 30 films since 2007, grossing almost $30 billion. But this empire of film didn't start as an empire. It all started with a man named Stan. Stan Lee. Or did it? Today we're joined by Abraham Reisman. Abraham is the author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. The book was published by Penguin Random House's Crown Imprint and is nominated for both the Hugo and Eisner Awards. As Neil Gaiman described it, True Believer is a biography that reads like a thriller or a whodunit. It's an exploration of an often farcical tragedy, the life after life and death of a salesman and an editor who dreamed of being something more. It unwraps Stanley Lieber, the man, and Stan Lee, the invention and the brand name, and manages to be scrupulously honest, deeply damning, and sometimes even heartbreaking. Abraham Reisman is a Providence-based journalist writing primarily for New York Magazine about arts and culture. Abraham's work has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, the New Republic, and Vice, among other publications. We are super, super thrilled to be joined by Abraham today to talk about Stanley and all things Marvel. Thank you so hey, much Abe. for joining us. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Quick correction. Yes. Reisman. Reisman like Reese's Pieces. Oh, Reisman. Reisman. Okay. I don't I don't care. You don't need to re-record it, but just for future discussion. Okay. It's, uh, That's cool. We'll yeah, leave that bit on so people get the correction. That's fine. <laughs> Works for me. So how did you get to write this book? Why? Well, um, you want the long version or the short version? The long version. The long version is I grew up uh, a Marvel head. Um, I used to first watch the Marvel cartoons that were popular among millennials in the early 90s. And then as time went on, I got into the actual comics themselves and I became kind of an addict. I was very involved in, in the plots and the stories behind the scenes and the characters. And then they sort of dropped off in my interest around college but when I became uh, employed at New York Magazine, well, actually a little before then, I'd started reading comics again. And when I started working at New York Magazine in 2013, uh, Marvel was really exploding in popular culture. You had uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, all of these interconnected movies really kind of reaching a mainstream and critical legitimacy that Marvel had never had before, uh, at least at that scale. 
And so I started writing about comic books and Marvel more generally for New York Magazine. It was the right place at the right time. And eventually one day came when, and this was, I believe, August of 2015, uh, an editor, David Wallace Wells, walks up to my desk, plops down uh, a, an advanced copy of Stan Lee's uh, comics format memoir, Amazing, Fantastic, Incredible, and he says, you should do something with this. Now, uh, I assumed this meant, okay, great, I'm gonna get to work on a big old profile. So I started working on research and lining up interviews so I could do some large magazine profile. About a week in, I went to David, the editor, and updated him on where I was at. Before I could get far in, he said, whoa, 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 I meant you should write a short review of this for, uh, you know, like a little capsule. To David's credit, he was very much on board with me continuing this profile research. So in uh, early 2016, I published a long profile of Stan Lee with New York Magazine at their culture site, Vulture. And it was a big hit. It, it did very well. And within a couple of years, Stan Lee passed away. This was November of 2018. And soon after that, Penguin Random House reached out uh, to me through my agent asking if I'd be interested in expanding my research to write a full biography of Stan. Um, I was at first reluctant because I'd never written a book before, and I was actually trying to transition out of talking about comics all the time. But it was too good an opportunity to pass up, and Isn't I it like a head first in. Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? In when... the dream of like every journalist, no? Or... It is, but it's also a huge undertaking, and you can fall flat on your face if you don't do a good <laughs> job. So yeah. um, those two things kind of kept me up at night for a few weeks, and then I just went, you know what, this is this you is only live, YOLO, You YOLO'd it. YOLO, I YOLO'd my journalism career. <laughs> but since then, you've published another book uh, about- uh, I hasn't uh, published yet, but I've written. It's coming out in March on March 28th of, of 2023. Okay. It's uh, a sort of spiritual sequel in some ways. It's another biography of a figure who legitimized uh, a cultural thing that was previously seen as pure silliness, which uh, is pro wrestling in this case. So I'm writing a biography of Vince McMahon, the professional wrestling tycoon who is behind what was the World Wrestling Federation and now is known as WWE. Um, and it's called Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. It's, uh, yeah, that's the one I'm working on now. Yeah, it looks really good. Thank you, um, I appreciate that. And you said it's coming out when? March 28th, 2023 in the U.S., which it's is nice. the Tuesday before next year's WrestleMania. So just all, as chaotic a release date. It was an accident. We were supposed to come out in November, and then all these shipping delays that have been plaguing the oh, book yeah. industry yeah. led to a big reshuffle, and they gave us a new date. And I looked at the calendar and realized that it was the Tuesday before WrestleMania, which is the, the big Perfect. sort of Super Bowl of pro wrestling. So, yeah, that's awesome. A little chaotic, but I'm not complaining. No, that's good timing. So before we move on, the Stanley novel, I'm assuming, is available anywhere you can buy books, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, it's, uh, you can get it digitally or as an audiobook or in glorious print. I highly recommend the paperback edition because I corrected the one error that I made that made me horribly embarrassed that has no bearing on the actual content of the argument or the narrative, but it just happened to be a date that I got wrong in the first sentence of the first chapter. <laughs> I so see that, that just, one, that one kept you up a few nights. I'm assuming that one kept it me up like... and finally in the paperback edition, we corrected it. <laughs> so I highly recommend the paperback for that okay. very reason. Um, so as you embarked on this journey, 
into Stan like okay the most people what do they know about Stanley right they know he ha- they know him through the cameos i think that's mm-hmm. the most right notable uh, they see him as the father uh, of marvel and the creator of all the characters we know and love like for me it's x-men but maybe for mm-hmm. others it's spider-man uh i don't remember if he was involved in superman or not but but what no superman no. is another yeah. company yeah it's dc right right i'm not as as a big uh comic geek. yeah I, I, I represent the non-comic enthusiasts i uh, get paid to be an expert you don't so <laughs> it's totally fine I'll, i'm happy to bestow wisdom upon you thank you um so i guess my question is when as you embarked on this journey what well, like what did you expect to find and what mm-hmm. What did you end up uh, finding out that you didn't know? Well, I certainly expected to find a lot of lies, basically, if we're going to be blunt. Um, What I had figured out through research for the initial article was there were enormous gaps in the truth of what Stan presented to the world regarding his own career and the careers of the people around him. There are these, I can get into some of them, but there were all of these things that are just provable mistruths. And I assumed because they were already so plentiful, once I started this book, I was going to find a lot more. And I did. Um, Stan was a man who very regularly just either bent the truth or outright lied. Or as he claimed, he didn't have a very good memory. So maybe every single time he was just making it up as he went along because he didn't remember or he had misremembered. I find that a little less easy to believe. Um, But what I found was not just that. I had an interesting interaction over the phone with this other biographer, a man named Peter Goralnik, uh, who Jewish geography went to summer camp with my father. Um, He wrote this two volume biography of Elvis among a lot of other books. I had a phone conversation with Peter uh, early in my research on the stand book and said, you know, I was just consulting him for advice. And I said, look, I have, you know, this is in some ways an expose. You know, there's all of these things that people assume are true about Stan Lee that are completely false or at least deeply dubious. And he said to me, you can write that book. You could write a book that's just an expose saying, look at how much this guy lied and here's the truth. Or you can do that plus have it be a story about why did he lie? And what were the impact of those lies? And how do those lies tell us something about the broader body politic? And that was some of the best advice I ever received as a journalist, because in order to sustain interest for a whole biography, you have to be saying something more than, haha, look at this guy who lied about where he's from and everything. Um, that's, that's just not as compelling as a story that gets more into the meat of what motivated that and into the world-changing consequences of the mistruths that he put out there. So I'd say that's one thing where my expectation and the reality ended up being slightly different. Can you give us maybe like the most top three absurd lie that you ran into? Well, sure. I mean, the, the most important one, we might as well cut to the chase, is the question of who created the Marvel Universe. Um, in the 1960s, from about 1961 to well, might as well say from 61 until 1970, 69, 70, depending on how you date it, um, Stan was working in partnership with a lot of other comics creators 
creating these characters and stories that would become the foundation of the Marvel Universe. And for decades, the party line has been, well, Stan was a writer and the editor, so he must have, according to him, and we should believe him, this is, this is the conventional wisdom, that he created the ideas for all of these characters in detail, then handed the ideas off to artists who drew the characters. But Stan would always say, I always feel like the person who has the initial idea is the creator. And, pardon me, I always feel like the people who have the original ideas are the creators, and that's me in this case. That was his whole argument, was that he was the progenitor of all of these characters and therefore the Marvel Universe. Well, unfortunately, it's not so simple. As it turns out, the, his primary collaborator in that period in the 1960s was a man named Jack Kirby. They were both Jewish, but they ended up taking very Goyesha names. It was Stanley Martin Lieber, and Jack Kirby's birth name was uh, Jacob Kurtzberg. But Jack Kirby was an artist, but he was also a writer. He was a writer artist. He could do, he was what we in comics call a cartoonist, a full cartoonist. He could do all aspects of the comic, basically, or at least the two core elements, which is the words and the pictures. He had already co-created Captain America. Uh, he had co-created the concept of the romance comic, which was the best-selling genre of a certain part of the 50s. He was very prolific at creating new characters that took off, that people were interested in, and genres that people were interested in. And he came, he'd worked at Marvel a bit uh, in the 30s and 40s, and then he came back in 1958 and in 61, he's the artist on Fantastic Four number one, which is the comic that sort of launches the Marvel experiment in a lot of ways. And what's interesting is there is no evidence that Stan created these characters. Absolutely none. I'm not saying I can conclusively prove he didn't do it, but for decades, the press, historians, comics professionals have all just sort of taken Stan's word for it. But there is none. There's there's no there's no hard evidence. There's no diary entries. There's no um, you know presentation boards. There's no anything like that on Stan's part. It seems equally likely, if not more likely, although again, unfortunately, because documentation was so haphazard back then, we're not going to have a real conclusive answer. But it seems equally, if not more likely, that Jack Kirby, who had created a lot of characters that had been successful was the one who generated all of these figures, whether it's the X-Men or the Avengers or Black Panther, um, to a certain extent, Spider-Man, although that's a complicated story. Um, so the big question and lie and potential lie is that Stan created these characters, when in reality, it may well have been that Jack and assorted others to a lesser extent, but mostly Jack created it all. So, um, that's one part. Uh, another thing that's related and is a demonstrable lie is the notion that Stan was the primary writer on these comic stories. By Stan's own admission, uh, at length, many times, he was not writing comics from a script. He was not doing what you might intuitively assume a comics production process would be. He was not sitting down and going, okay, in this script, you know, on panel one, I want this to be happening visually, and these are the words that the dialogue bubbles are going to say. Then panel two is this. He didn't do that. He did something that was later dubbed the Marvel method, where he would have some kind of conversation with whoever the artist was on that book, on that comic book, 
And the artist, but I should say the writer artist, would take that vague conversation, maybe a couple of bullet points from it, go home. They were all freelancers. He would go home uh, and then write the story. It's just that he was writing with pictures, whoever this writer artist would be on a given comic. More often than not, it was Jack Kirby. Jack would go and he would map out the entire story by drawing it panel by panel by panel. He would even leave in notes in the margins saying, hey, I think the dialogue here should be something along the lines of this or like explaining what's going on. He would then hand the pages that had been drawn, had been written, the story that had been written to Stan and Stan would then add in the actual language used for the dialogue bubbles and the narration. But that was the extent of Stan's involvement. He was not actually composing the narrative. He was not composing the plot beats. He was filling in what had already been implied. Uh, it's not quite as simple as that, but more or less that was that. And yet all of these comics were credited as written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby or whoever, or story by Stan Lee, art by whoever, when really the whoever in that question was always the primary writer and the artist. And they weren't even getting paid as writers. They were only getting paid as artists, which is just not fair. I mean, a lot of things in life aren't fair, but that's that's just not how we're supposed to do business. And so and, to to, yeah, to yeah, the I question, keep going, but I feel like those are the two big ones. And I no, I think rambling. that that's 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 super interesting. And to the 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 advice that your journalist friend um, gave you, the that you know the best piece of advice that you said that you got. Why was he telling these lies? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Stan, this gets into his his personal biography a little bit more. Stan was a child of the depression. He was a child of two Romanian Jewish refugees who'd left uh, escaped anti-Semitism in Romania around the turn of the 20th century. He'd been raised in the lower middle class, let's say. Uh, his family was okay on money, but still pretty desperate. It was the Depression. His father was a dress cutter um, and would just sort of sit at home during the, the lean years looking at want ads in the paper and, and seeming distressed. His father was also a difficult man, um, according to Stan on the few times when he talked about him and according to Stan's brother, uh, Larry Lieber, who I interviewed at length. Um, you know, their father was, was a dour and judgmental man who really didn't show much love for anybody. And without turning this into too much of an Oedipus complex, there is an element of Stan's motivation that comes out of wanting to be better than his father. He talks about this in his prose format memoir of, uh, I believe it was 2002, um, called uh, Excelsior. He talks about how his main motivation in life, this is the beginning of the first chapter, is wanting to be needed by somebody in a professional monetary sense, like wanting to be successful enough that he can satisfy the needs of his family. That was kind of his driving goal. And if you come from a period like the depression, you learn that sometimes success has to be won at all costs. And I do think just based on Stan's own words and just my understanding of human nature, that's about as good an explanation as you can come up with, which was 
he was constantly anxious about losing his foothold or his handhold on the American experiment and on wealth and success. And that drove him to cut corners. He could get away with it. So he did it. Um, and that was to the detriment of a lot of other people. You know, he wasn't a murderer, but it still was uh, a harmful thing. And I think a lot of it came out of wanting to have security. Um, some technical questions come to mind. First of all, we're talking about si the 60s. There's a company, right? It's Marvel Comics. Is the it, name it was, the yeah, well, it was, uh, it has all these weird names. The line of comics was called Marvel Comics, but it was owned by a company whose name often changed, uh, this larger publishing house run by Stan's cousin-in-law, which was how he got the job in the first place, um, a man named Mo Moses Martin Goodman. Um, so uh, anyway, yes, that, so, that, so the company was initially what's, the, the print. Yeah. What's Stan Lee's official role and in which His company? His official role from the 40s until, from basically 1941 40, until... Uh, until 1971, was as the editor-in-chief, although they just called him the head editor or the Of editor. Marvel but Comics. In, of Marvel Comics, of the comics line at Martin Goodman's company. He was in charge of the comics there. And did he own shares of, one, of the company no, no. or Stan the Stan never owned anything. Stan <laughs> was an exceptionally poor businessman and worked in a very rapacious industry where basically, unless you own the company, you make you have no ownership of anything. Comics is a relentlessly and despicably unjust artistic industry in America for a lot of reasons. And one of them is virtually everything you do if you're writing for Marvel or DC, the two big companies that do superhero things, everything you create is what they call work for hire. You don't actually own any of the sweat of your brow. You're creating stuff for someone else to make money off of, and they give you a check in return. It's a little more complicated that, than that in that there have been brief periods here and there where there have been agreements where creators of especially significant characters who are really good at negotiating would get like a tiny cut of the royalties. But the fact is, if you write a book, unless it's a special kind of book, generally you own the rights to this story that you create. So, so, but so... Not so in comics. So he was... He was an employee. employee. He was the editor-in-chief. Which and means he was writing, he was doing the writing in a freelance capacity. Yeah. That's the other thing about comics. All the writers and artists, they're all independent contractors. They are not actually full-time employees. They don't have health insurance. They, you know, have to pay double the taxes, et cetera. Um, and Stan often talked about this, where he'd say, like, oh, well, you know, I'm the editor and the art director. He was also that. But when I'm writing, I'm a freelancer like you guys, you know, this would be something he would use to try to relate with, with other freelance writers. Yeah. And the fact is he had much more job security than they ever did. Right. But he never owned, like, it, it's not like that the credit that he did or did not take without, uh, mm. deserve, deserving it. It's not that it, I mean, it, it's not that it, it helped him in owning anything. Right. No. No, he owned nothing. So he never, an he never ended oh, sorry, up taking over Marvel Comics, meaning Stanley never owned Marvel Comics or nope. never owned any part Not of it. Not even close. Wow. He was always an employee and, and he, never he had sued. power. He never sued for... for... He did sue in 2002 because um, 
He'd signed a contract in 1998 that entitled him to 10% of the profits, although you can kind of read it as either 10% of the profits or 10% of the profits on top of the profits. It's confusing. Um, for the film and television adaptations of Marvel stuff. Um, this was before, in 1998, there hadn't really been any adaptations uh, that had been very lucrative, at least in film. Um, but then they start making these successful movies, Blade in 1998, X-Men in 2000, and then Spider-Man in 2002. And Stan does this interview when Spider-Man comes out where he says, look, I haven't made a dime off of any of this, even though I have this agreement. And he went ahead and sued Marvel. And they settled. Mm -hmm. uh, they settled for a reported about $10 million that, that Stan got, which I'm sure seemed like a lot of money at the time. But if you think about it, it's if he joke. retained a percentage yeah. of these movies, $10 million would have been chump change for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. So a controversial and perhaps regrettable decision on his part, but that was the one time that he sued. Yet... Stan Lee was credited by Marvel, meaning they gave him this very... They gave him an executive producer credit, but it's entirely ceremonial. They didn't pay him anything for it. They and not only that, he, they, wasn't, they... he wasn't getting paid as an EP. He got paid scale, as they say, like basic minimum wage for uh, the, appearing in the, the cameos. cameos. That was it. He got paid scale. The superhero industry is horrible to everybody. The superhero industry is just a relentlessly bad phenomenon but why would even they... for people like stan lee who are the winners you still get left behind why know? why would they cameo him in the films i mean isn't that just kind of setting themselves up for a claim or the lawsuit that no because eventually... he'd settled he'd settled into that i mean initially uh, there was there was this period of the lawsuit between 2002 and 2005 when there weren't that many superhero movies so it wasn't really an issue um by the time they resolved the lawsuit in 2005 that's when and, and in fact, people often think, and I'm inclined to agree, that 2005 was, they, they settled then because Marvel was in a rush to try and raise money to start the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which launches in 2008. So by the time the MCU starts, Stan has been like, he's okay with Marvel again. They're on good terms. But why didn't? Um, but why in the? Sorry, it's just it's technicalities, yeah, but it's so interesting. But in the in the last years to his life, where his cameos were you know a phenomenon right it was a must sure. have why didn't he negotiate like a million dollar per cameo right he was a terrible businessman <laughs> and they would have also probably just not had him if he asked for more money i almost guarantee you marvel would have just cut their losses and interesting said, okay well because no the fans would would be angry i think no the but fans are the most placatable people in the world <laughs> like I, I i there's this myth that the fans get angry about stuff and they do and they do but they always come back. Mm -hmm. Marvel has not actually really lost major viewership. It's still number one. They do terrible things. They like put out bad movies and every time, <laughs> myself included in the past, we go, well, I think this is it for Marvel or like they, they've made a big flub this time. You saw the reviews for Thor 4, it just mm -hmm. came out. It's mm -hmm. apparent, I haven't even seen it, but apparently from every critic I've read, it's abysmal. It's like a terrible movie, but it hasn't affected viewership really. It's still gonna be a massive hit. So you could have fired Stan Lee and I don't think, I think people would have been like, oh, that sucks. And then they would have gone back to see the next so, movie. So back to the 60s again. Um, Please. First of all, so uh, 
Kirby was alive when you wrote the biography? Kirby died in 1994, so mm, no, okay. I did not. So, all we, so how do we know if it was all like based on conversations? How do we mm. know that he was not a crucial part? I mean, Stan. Stan. Uh, in the, well, he may well have been. A, he was a crucial part in, in so far as he was selling things. No, but in the creative Marvel. work... In the creative, in the creative work. work, he he was important in that his his method of writing, his or rather his his style of writing, um, the verbiage that he chose, the words he chose were were all very jazzy and syncopated and alliterative, and that's very important creative stuff. He created a voice for a lot of different characters. I don't want to minimize that, and he did sell things uh, extremely well. Jack Kirby was not a salesman. Um, nor was really anybody else in the industry on the scale of Stan. Yeah. But the reason we suspect that things were not so simple as Stan's narrative is because Jack Kirby kind of went on the war path in the 80s. Uh, he basically just decided to stop holding his tongue and started telling the press, the comics press, and anyone who would listen, that he had been the creator of these characters. But isn't it and that he said she said? I guess. I mean, it is insofar as there was haphazard, like I said, d uh, documentation of everything from back then. Mm -hmm. Nobody thought these comics were going to last. It was <laughs> yeah. not anticipated that these comics, nobody working for any of these companies thought this was going to be a massive cultural artifact that's worth billions of dollars. That just wasn't in their heads, really. So no one was keeping close records of any of it. Um, so yeah, it is a he said, she said, but what people end up falling back on is looking at the comparative careers of Stan and Jack, which we didn't really get into. They each created from when created comics from when they were participated in the creation of comics from when they were very young and the industry was being born uh, in the thirties all the way until each of their deaths. They, you know, Kirby died in the early nineties and then Stan died in 2018. In that time, Stan created absolutely nothing other than the, the Marvel universe that he's credited with co-creating, created absolutely nothing of lasting value other than the character of Stan Lee. Name one other Stan Lee character that's not from Marvel. Stripperella is the only one anyone can ever come up with. This stripper, spy, superhero character that was just sort of a campy, you know, joke in 2003. Maybe it's like the Beatles, you know, when you have your golden years and the first two albums and then it's okay for and the then rest. you make great solo records like double fantasy or you know mccartney <laughs> 2 but the thing is stan didn't or, do that. or ringo star ringo has album. some good stuff but that's yeah. the thing is stan was a little more like ringo in that the stuff he created you know even ringo had photograph but like um or picture book whatever it was called but uh the point is um you have jack on the other hand from when he's very young creating Captain co-creating Captain America and a bunch of other successful things. And then after Marvel, he goes to DC mm -hmm. and he creates this huge pantheon of characters that are all still being used, or a lot of them are at least. The most notable character probably being Darkseid, the giant evil um, god of darkness that uh, is often the sort of final boss of DC stories. And that's among a bunch of other characters. Jack was just somebody who generated successful characters at a much higher rate than Stan ever did. And whenever Stan didn't have Jack or to a certain extent, his other major collaborator, Steve Ditko, he couldn't create stuff that anybody cared about. And 
just to fill this gap how mm-hmm. and why did stan get into comic books he got into comic books basically just by accident through nepotism when he was a teenager he graduated from uh, from high school did a, a couple of months in college then dropped out was doing some odd jobs and then one day um so the story well stan often told a story version of the story where he said you know i saw an ad in the newspaper and i said wow I should go, uh, you know, work on the, at this company, and I showed up, and they they hired me. As it turns out, and he even changed his story later in his life. It was more that his cousin-in-law owned the company, and his uh, uncle was sort of the second in command. So the uncle one day shows this is according to Joe Simon, another comics creator who was there at the time, who was the editor in chief at the time, in fact. The uncle comes up to him and says, "Hey, my sister's kid needs a place to work. You know, he's going to come in tomorrow. You got to give him some jobs." And Stan became what was known as a uh, excuse me. Stan became what was known as a gopher. Gopher, as in in English, you'll say, "Go for that thing. Go for this thing. Like, go get me a coffee. Go get me a pencil." And then um, the he was working for as a gopher for Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. It was his first interactions with Jack Kirby. And then one day, uh, Simon and Kirby, who were not getting paid very much by Martin Goodman, decided to moonlight. They started secretly doing some comics for DC. And they told Stan, and then somebody told Martin. Stan always says it wasn't him. Jack thought it was Stan. Joe Simon didn't think it was Stan. It could have been anybody. The fact is, uh, once Martin Goodman found out that they were moonlighting, Simon and Kirby were fired. And that meant they needed a new the company needed a new editor-in-chief a new head editor so uh, for a few weeks it was one of Goodman's brothers and then shortly after that he appointed Stan who was like 19 years old at the time and had virtually no experience in this industry but then again basically nobody had experience in the industry because it hadn't existed that long mm-hmm. you know the first Superman story comes out in 1938 and this is only 194041 mm-hmm so anyway, that was kind of the beginning of his time in comics was just this accident, basically. He had no interest in comics. He read newspaper comics because everybody did. But when it came to comic books, those had only been invented in 1933. He wasn't in, you know, a longtime fan because nobody was. He didn't have any particular interest in comics. And he would always talk about this in private and sometimes even in public. He didn't like comics. He didn't read comics. He made comics. But he didn't like the medium. He was constantly trying to get out of it and get into Hollywood or something else. And, you know, it's it's just sort of a fact of who he was. So maybe let's talk a bit about the 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 character of the superhero. If you could tell us a little sure. bit about I mean, it, it it does make sense that it like in retrospect, you know, it's this very alluring, fantastical thing that everybody wants a superpower, but mm-hmm. it wasn't always this huge cultural phenomenon. So where did where did the character of the superhero start? It, it was pretty much from the beginning. Okay. I mean, when Superman, I mean, it's gone through cycles of popularity, but Superman debuts in 1938 and is instantaneously the most successful, like one of the most successful entertainment products in America. Um, kids everywhere completely go gaga for this thing and not really adults but adults at least noted that their kids were buying this stuff uh you know left and right and then for the next few years you have this glut of superheroes everybody who had like i said comic books had been around since 1933 but they'd been like different kinds of genres superheroes had not been invented yet or at least superheroes as we think of them now 
So once you have that debut of Superman and its success, you have Batman the next year and then Captain America. And I mean, these are just the big names, you know, Wonder Woman. But in in reality, there were hundreds upon hundreds of these characters that were just proliferating, most of them completely forgotten by now. And since then, the superhero has waxed and waned in popularity. You know, after World War II, there was a real drop off in interest in superheroes, which continued for a while. And then when Marvel got big in 1961, there was renewed interest in superheroes. And since Marvel, there's never really been a complete, like, abandoning of comics, or rather, I should say, of superheroes. Um, you know, they've remained either popular in comics in some form or outside of comics, kind of since the 60s, again, with ups and downs. And I think what appeals to, you know, there's a lot of things that appeal to us about power fantasies. But for me, what I think the most appealing sort of subconscious thing is about superheroes is the idea that you could do things and, and have a positive impact on the world, which sounds simple. But the fact is we live in a world where you can't know if anything you're doing is actually a good thing or is going to have an ultimately good impact on the people around you. Superman's greatest power is that he can identify right from wrong and does the right thing. And most of us just don't have that capacity. There's something very seductive, not just about the power of a superhero, but about the moral certitude, the fact that this superhero knows exactly how to fight evil. Um, and it's much more complicated than that. There are a whole lot of other factors, but that's one that's always sort of resonated with me and that I think has more of an impact than people necessarily realize. And does, uh, does the, I, I, I absolutely agree, but does the, does the, I guess the, the archetype of the superhero go further back than 19, I mean, 38 was. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, it depends on what you define as the superhero. Cause you have like Peter you know, Pan, right. And you have, I mean, sure. You, you there's all kinds go... of people with fantastical powers who do do good or, yeah. or fight crime or whatever. And you can have debates until the cows come home about, you know, was Gilgamesh a superhero? You know, it's, it's sort of a useless debate in my opinion, cause you can, pinpoint it wherever you want just by changing the criteria but the generally accepted date or year in which what we think of as the superhero somebody in colorful spandex or a colorful costume of some kind or memorable one at least fighting crime uh with abilities uh, that are beyond those of normal people that doesn't emerge until 1938 with superman and uh this is in comics form in 1938? Yeah, in comics, yeah. Action Comics number one, uh, which comes out in 1938, is the debut of Superman. Wow. So what were the responses to the book? Uh, people liked it. Um, there were a lot of haters because Stan is a very beloved figure, and I don't pull punches in my analysis of him. But there's nothing to be done about that. You know, uh, nobody has any factual problems with what I said. They just think that I didn't emphasize things they would have emphasized or, you know, vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Stan's major protege, a man named Roy Thomas, wrote this sort of editorial knocking me down in The Hollywood Reporter. But honestly, I, I sort of took it as a compliment. Roy Thomas is a legend. And to have reached a point where he has to comment on this book, for me, I was honored. Um, and I have no real beef with Roy. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it was received very well. You know, it was it was written up that a five page 
feature in, in the print New Yorker. It was in the New York Review of Books in print. It was, you know, I got some great blurbs. I was I was very lucky. Did and you get anything a from his solid seller since does he has does he have uh, like kids or he has one child, uh, one surviving child. There was a baby who only lived a few days in 1950. It was 51. Uh, I can't remember. But um, they had uh, a first child who still is around, uh, a woman named Joan Celia Lee or J.C. Lee. Um, and she's a whole other set of questions. She, uh, You know how I mentioned that a lot of what drove Stan was his desire to provide and to be a provider and be someone who was needed financially and materially, that really manifested itself with his wife, Joan, and his daughter, Joan Celia. They, and I hate saying this because it always sounds misogynistic on some level, but this is just based on reporting and even by their own admissions and Stan's admission. Both of them were very, uh, well, Joan is no longer with us, JC still is. They had very expensive habits. They were both sort of shopaholics and would buy a lot and needed cash flow in order to do so. So you have Stan as early as the 60s and 70s talking about how he needs to keep working. It's always couched in a joke, but it's, or, or with a laugh, but um, talking about how he needs to make money so he can keep paying for his wife and daughter's lifestyles. And you cannot, I, I debated how much I wanted to get into that in the book because I didn't want to come across as just being gossipy but the fact is, you can't understand Stan's career if you don't understand the fact that his wife and daughter needed a lot of money to keep their lifestyles going. And he made a lot of decisions in his professional life based pretty much solely on that. So jo JC is, is an interesting character. But she's, an, we can talk she's about not a fan of like. your book, probably. <laughs> no, no. JC, JC uh, and I had one very unpleasant three-minute conversation interview um, at the very beginning of my research, which I chronicle in the book, um, and that was about it. Uh -huh. What happened on the interview? It's very. Uh... She. It's. It's. I always hate telling this story on some level because she's. She's again reportedly, according to many people I've interviewed, and according to Stan himself, she's not mentally well. She, Stan thought she was bipolar and schizophrenic. Um, uh, very specifically, these were things that he said she was. It's not just you know in a rant. He came up with these out of thin air and other people have backed that up. She has a lot of trouble and I don't envy her. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge, I think, to, to live her life, but I, I don't want to get into too much detail Got it. on that. So let's segue really sharply sharply Ooh, and uh, to the land of no superheroes. Yeah. The land of no, <laughs> Hey, you got Sabra, you got all kinds of, yeah, yeah. Sabra men. No, no, Sabra. Sabra is a Marvel character. Come on, you gotta, ah. you gotta have some. Really, have we have a. We, there's an Israeli Marvel character. There's an Israeli Marvel character debuted in The Incredible Hulk. She works for Mossad, and she has wow uh, super strength and all kinds of fun. Why isn't she in and the movies? Why doesn't she get her own movie? I hate to break it to you, but Israel is somewhat of a controversial subject in cinema, and I think they're probably avoiding having to deal with anybody's complaints. So, uh -huh. no offense, no offense, but that's my guess why Sabra hasn't. Also, I feel like I don't know. Sabra doesn't sound like something that would kind of really yeah. go viral. Yeah, I, I, it's 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 very much an American naming uh, an Israeli superhero. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yes, I've taken us off track. What were you going to ask? Yeah. Uh, so you write about Israel. How? How? I do. how... 
Like that's a completely different part of your career, basically. It is. It is and it isn't. I mean, I write a lot about Jewish topics and the comic book industry was invented by Jews. It was an almost entirely Jewish industry for its first few decades. And um, around the time that you have the comic book industry solidifying with a lot of refugees from Jewish Eastern Europe, you have refugees from Jewish Eastern Europe and Israel really solidifying this project of Israel. That's not exactly the parallel I look at, but it's this interesting, you know, co-evolution. And I started writing about Israel, Israel and American politics relating to Israel, which is more often what I'm writing about because I don't live in Israel. I live in America. Um, you know, that comes initially from having uh, a deep family background with Israel. I wrote an article, the cat is out of the bag on this because I wrote an article about it last year, but my grandfather, Robert A. Reisman Sr. was a major Zionist activist in the United States and New England in particular and Rhode Island most specifically. And so Israel was kind of this important thing, although I didn't really learn a ton about it from my grandfather. And my father didn't have much interest in it, although he had lived on a kibbutz with my mother at Kibbutz Yasor uh, up in the north back uh, in 1977, a very interesting year to be living in Israel. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, beside the point, when I started my Jewish education, I got a lot of interesting Israel information. It's sort of a typical story. I went on a free trip. It wasn't birthright, but it was like birthright when I was in college. But I didn't really think a ton about it. I, I thought in brief bursts a lot about the place, um, but didn't really sustain interest. And then when uh, Trump was elected in 2016, I had this thought, which was, if I'm going to, you know, I'll... Uh, maybe this is a break of journalistic bias, but I don't care. I was terrified of what Trump's victory meant for America and the world. And I thought, you know, what's something I can do that can have some kind of positive impact? And what I kept thinking about was how much he, the similarities between the way Trump had talked about the Arab and Muslim populations of the United States and the way that fascists had talked about Jews in the past. So I sort of made this commitment to try and at least educate myself about uh, that issue. And what I realized was if I'm going to be a Jew trying to help Arabs and Muslims, um, I need to understand kind of one of the main things that keeps that unity from ever existing on Moss. And that's that's, you know, for lack of a better word, the, con the conflict, the occupation, whatever you want to call it. And I realized I had to educate myself. So I went on a solo trip um, to Israel and into the West Bank. I took a bunch of tours with both Israeli Jews and Palestinians, Palestinians from East Jerusalem, from the occupied territories, from Israel proper. Just tried to, over the course of two weeks, cram as much experience and information into my head as I could. And it was this remarkable experience that sort of set me on a path of going, look, I'm never going to be smart enough. You know, I'm never going to be the, the world's greatest expert on all of this. And I don't live there. But what I can do is continue to learn and try to write about the most important dilemmas and you did that people face there. Do more than most of the people, I, I think, in America who write or, or express their opinions about the conflict do or did right like by the fact that you well, actually I, I came, came here i went and, yeah i started visiting at least once a year for a number of years unfortunately due to covid i have not been since january of 2020 when i was reporting a story 
but yes, I've made it my business to to go and mm-hmm. to talk to Israelis and talk how, to Palestinians. How did whatever. you bridge the gap between you being so terrified from Trump and the fact that Israelis love Trump? Uh, I get why they love Trump. It makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but Trump wasn't didn't end up really being the main topic in the articles that I was doing. That mm-hmm. was more just the beginning, the seed that started it. As time went on, I found that the more interesting stories, because people had written about Israeli love of Trump, that's that's a common news topic. What started to interest me were the more obscure stories, or at least sort of narrow stories, that although being narrow, reveal a lot about the larger set of questions um, and the larger set of injustices. And so, you know, I did I, when I was in Israel, I tried not to talk about Trump because I didn't. It didn't seem What's like the, the conversations went anywhere. Yeah. So what what kind of struck you when you come here? I mean, what when you when came here? When I come here? there? Yeah. Well, oh, geez, where to begin? I mean, for me, I know, boy, does it have its problems. But as somebody who grew up as that grew up loving history, like to the point where I thought I was going to be an academic historian, and then gave up because it meant sitting in libraries all day in college. Um, you can't beat Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem and as many as many problems as it has, if you're going to be there as like uh, a visitor, for me, I always find it to be, let me put it this way. My grandfather used the old line that he didn't come up with, um, but it was, you know, they didn't put the, Jerusalem isn't holy because they put the temple there. They put the temple there because it was holy. It's just a fascinating historical place. But what what strikes me, I mean, one thing that always I admire about Israelis and Palestinians is the brutal honesty that they'll have about their opinions, which I mean that. I, I hate the degree to which American liberals just don't say what they mean about Israel and the Palestinians and Israel, internal Israeli politics, et cetera. In America, you have to just speak in these lies and euphemisms, whereas you go have a conversation with the average Israeli, they'll just tell you what their political beliefs are. I mean, this is a generalization, but there's in public rhetoric a lot of beating they'll, around. They'll the tell you if you America. don't ask, even. <laughs> What'd you say? I didn't they'll hear tell you. you even if you don't ask. Even if you don't ask, exactly. And I, as a journalist, I, that's that's catnip to me because you're hearing something more honest and something that maybe you're not supposed to say in America, but that it's easier to say if you're in that so what, strip of land. What would you say is the most like? basic thing that the average American doesn't get about the conflict about the conflict oh geez yeah I spend so much time trying to figure out what the average American thinks about mm-hmm. this because I get so deep into it that I I start to lose perspective let me rephrase And the average I, uh, left-leaning American left-leaning American well it depends on how far left we're talking because you have the You know, broadly speaking, uh, the people in charge of major Jewish institutions in America, um, you know, the, because the majority of Jews in America ident- vote, vote democratic and uh, are also very uh, have some degree of attachment to Israel, you end up with a lot of liberal Zionism. you know that's that's the term we use here. Mm-hmm. And then you also have farther left. you have, especially among young people, uh, a real, utter rejection of Israel. And so the left is almost where you see the schism and all the, the mutual misunderstandings. But 
you know, I don't want to make things awkward, but I do feel like a lot of left-leaning Americans who are in the liberal Zionist camp aren't honest with themselves about the set of questions that they really need to be answering. There's this there's this tendency to talk about, well, we want peace, we want dialogue, and then they don't interrogate what those words mean. They don't ask, well, what kind of peace? Who wins this peace? Or dialogue, who's controlling the dialogue? Who gets to speak in the dialogue? And I, this is what I mean. I, 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 my first tour guide when I was in on that solo trip a few years back was a Palestinian guy who was about my age, and he talked about how he was studying at Hebrew U, and the best conversations he had were with the settler right. When he tried to talk to the center uh, or the left even, people like were, had trouble um, articulating, at least in front of him, exactly how what their their priorities were it was it was you know and and i i find it ah, i i find it frustrating that in america we just use buzzwords rather than talking about okay can this land be sustainable due to climate change in 100 years okay what are we going to do about the fact that there this there's this complete impasse on gaza you know we just sort of talk in highfalutin rhetoric here in america and don't try to get down to brass tacks and the pragmatic solutions to what's going on. And we don't talk about our ideology. We don't say, we don't have people who say, look, I, well, we do, but we need more people who are honest and say, look, I value Jewish life more than I value Palestinian life. And you have to kind of choose between one or the other in a conflict. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wish more people would be honest about their intentions because that would help us get to an actual resolution. Instead, we're talking in this smoke and mirrors way, and it really drives me up a tree. I guess people are scared of being called racist or... Uh... Well, a lot of people are racist. So, you know, it's, I'm not saying everybody is, but it's, it's, you end up with a world where people are afraid of being called racist, and so they don't really interrogate their own beliefs or what they mean or what, or what conclusions they would lead to. You know, um, so I don't want to make things too much more awkward, but I, uh, it's, it's, we, we don't mind getting question. awkward. We don't mind getting okay, awkward. Okay. <laughs> okay. You invited me on to talk about the comics and I, I didn't want to, uh, no, it's great. Hosts, but. It's actually great. I, I'm, I'm interested to hear like, how do you see, I mean, you've visited here. You, you made it a point of trying to investigate the conflict. Like wh- where do you see the conflict going do you see some kind of viable solution do you think i I am a very can you bring the peace maybe (laughs) yeah right or is it going to take a superhero yeah (laughs) jeez i for me what i tend to think about is climate change i just think about the fact that in a hundred years we're all going to be diasporic populations a lot of people who currently live in israel palestine are not going to be living in israel palestine anymore because in a hundred years well i mean their descendants, I suppose, because it won't be very habitable just due to the larger forces that have nothing to do with the Jews or the Palestinians. So I tend to think we're going to have a relatively depopulated strip of land where people have shipped out or died. And I think we're going to have, that's going to be the resolution of the conflict. We're Never underestimate the Israeli AC technology. It's, really, it's amazing. <laughs> it is pretty nice. So I, I don't know. I, I, I can't predict the future, but my best hope is basically that people on both sides try to give up on the complete obsession with it has to be this land or nothing else. Just because I don't think the land, it, just from a pragmatic perspective, my prediction is the land isn't going to be very habitable. So we have to be thinking beyond land and start thinking about where are people going to go? 
I, I not to be too much of a pessimist, but I just tend to think we're doing absolutely nothing to mitigate climate change, and it's going to get very, very. I bad. would, I would, um, I would say that if it were going to this, like if I'm trying to go in your direction, mm-hmm. I would say that I disagree about the land not being uh, in not being inhabitable. But if Africa becomes not inhabitable and we are the only border, land border with Africa, Mm -hmm. that might maybe threaten. Oh, I'm not even getting into all the compound threats of other climate. Um, Other because the thing is, you have desalination in Israel, so you're gonna have people beating down the door for fresh water. Yeah, right. I mean, Jordan's already water. We already do have that. They're basically out already. Yeah. You know, it's 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 going to be a very very complex and difficult security situation in addition to a resource situation. And I don't envy. You know, lately I've been doing a lot of thinking about where can I escape to, and I just Canada. don't really envy anybody who is going to be trying. I mean, anywhere trying to live through the next hundred years. But I feel like things are going to get very dicey in Israel Palestine. But they're always a little wow. icy. So what are yeah. you gonna do? You know, <laughs> we're gonna miss the good old days. We're gonna get nostalgic about. Hey, remember the conflict? Yeah, good times. Hey, remember that? That was that was fun <laughs> times compared to this. Oh, anyway, do you want to end on a more positive note? Yeah. Should we talk about something fun? Yeah. Like what? Do you have any? <laughs> I'm trying to think. What should we talk about? Like, who's um, your favorite? Tell us a little bit more about Sabra. About Sabra? Oh, I'm not enough of an expert on Sabra. But here's my favorite comic oh, Jewish yeah. Israel thing. Okay. My okay. favorite thing. And I want to someday write this fan fiction story about how to fill it in the gaps is the fact that no one remembers this. No one ever remembers this. Magneto? Ah, that Shimon Peres was in the, co- not Shimon, so, no, right? There was in a comic uh, book, a cameo of Shimon Peres. It Pe- may have been, but, but here's, here's, here's the point I was going to make was Magneto. Everybody knows Magneto, mm, right? Yeah. Magneto is Jewish. He's a survivor. What well, everyone Haifa. forgets. Well, yeah, he, he goes to Haifa, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He ends up making Aliyah for a while. That's where he goes from the DP camp. That's where he meets Charles Xavier. Yeah. There's this beautiful implied story in the first issue where you get to see that background, um, where there's just like this triptych of panels where it's showing Charles uh, Xavier, Magneto, and this other survivor who had been comatose and Charles had been brought in to try and rouse her. It's the three of them just wandering pre-67 Israel and just discussing humanity and minority rights and majority rights and what do you do in a time of crisis and Jewishness, I'm sure, and Zionism, I'm sure. And that's that to me is the essence of what comics could be doing if it was going to be more daring. Is there a- You know, comics is very safe and I would love someday, I don't think it'll ever happen, to be able to write, you know, the definitive story of like, okay, so what does it mean that Magneto made Aliyah? You know, what did that teach him? And why, and Magneto is not an entirely evil character. People love Magneto. I myself have deep affection for Magneto, but I feel like the Zionism element is something that really is interesting and pregnant with narrative possibility. So if anybody's listening and wants to hire me to do the uh, the Magneto Zionism story, I'm I'm totally down. My my idea is that uh, he gets there, and he um, starts fighting with one of the militias, probably uh, probably the Stern Gang, I would imagine. But is there is there a, a depiction of his like a thorough depiction of his concentration camp years? Yeah, there was a story that came out called Magneto Testament. I believe it was in 2009. 
that, that was would be a very really cool good. movie. Yeah, it, it was good. Um, I don't want to diss it at all, but it was very safe. Mm. And I'm not saying it should have been more daring because it's a Holocaust story. I mean, it's something you have to be safe with to a certain extent. But I, I did feel like there were limits to what a mainstream comic book can say about the Shoah um, and about why the Shoah happened. And it felt a little bit like, okay, well, this is Schindler's List except starring Magneto. You know, it was just sort of a, a kind of a boilerplate Holocaust concentration camp story, which is important, mm -hmm. but I didn't think it added a whole ton to the larger mythos in the way that I think a story filling in some of the Israeli background. I always just felt people don't know that history as much. Yeah. You know? I always felt that Brian, uh, I, I forgot his name, Brian who made the first X-Men, first and second. Singer, Bright Singer. Singer. The Bright Singer's two, choice two. to start the first movie, which is a very important in movie. Auschwitz. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a very a good whole, choice. It's a, and it it's was. a great scene, I think. One of the I best wrote, scenes. I wrote a whole essay for a reported piece for Vulture a few years ago about how Magneto became Jewish. Because in the initial Marvel comics that Stanley and Jack Kirby wrote, Magneto wasn't Jewish. He was vaguely European. That was it. It wasn't until this other writer, Chris Claremont, came aboard in the late 1970s, early 1980s, that he started to have this idea of like, okay, so he's this trauma survivor of some kind of trauma. He's European. He's about this age. What does that map out to? Oh, he's probably a survivor of the camps. And it wasn't even made canonical that he was Jewish specifically until much later. But for decades, it was pretty obvious. He would talk about how he was in Auschwitz and he lost his mm -hmm. people. They just, for some reason, Marvel was kind of chicken about identifying religions within comics, so they uh -huh. didn't call him a Jew, but eventually they did. And, and I was really, you know, Brian Singer is in many ways a complete monster, allegedly, um, but that movie, starting with Auschwitz, I think was indeed a brilliant decision. It tells you a lot about the character and gives you a lot of perspective on why he sympathy. becomes what he becomes. And and is there any any another like is there other um, Holocaust stories in Marvel comics and Marvel? Let me think for a second. What are the uh, um? I'm sure there are, but it doesn't. It's not a. It's not a common trope. It's mm -hmm. something that's a little. I mean, it's hard to talk about. It's yeah. it's the Showa. You know, what are you gonna do? It's it, there's so little that you can say in a children's story about that. That's right. going to really have the right impact i mean don't get me started on holocaust education in america and how it completely dropped the ball to the point where you have like anti-vaxxers wearing yellow stars on their sleeves talking about how they're the new jews holocaust education in america has been a complete abysmal failure and we need to completely revamp it but that's a conversation for another day right okay thank you so much abe for coming to to the show hey thanks um, for having me let's plug what's the pluggable things sure yeah go to abrahamreisman.com conventional spelling r-i-e-s-m-a-n uh even if you misspell it as r-e-i-s-m-a-n i registered that domain too <laughs> and it'll redirect because that's the family curse um and if you want to follow me on twitter i tweet far too much but it's twitter.com slash abraham joseph and please uh pre-order my book uh mm -hmm. it is ringmaster uh well let's you can order my existing book stanley uh, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, or you can pre-order my next one, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon, The Unmaking of America. You can see all of it at abrahamreisman.com. Amazing. Perfect. Thank, Thank you so, so much, much, Abe. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.